welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I am your host, and I appreciate your support in being on today's podcast. Today's podcast is um, a special episode. Um, it is with Dr. Wes Fisher. Over the past, I would say, few weeks, uh, you have actually witnessed an explosion on social media of folks who are really contesting the ABIM maintenance of certification. This is really uh, a big deal. There was a petition that was started by Dr. Aaron Goodman from UCSD to end the maintenance of certification. <clears throat> the maintenance of certification is a process by which the ABIM, the American Board of Internal Medicine, assures that your board certification is maintained by taking continuous testing you can do that every 10 years or every quarterly through the longitudinal knowledge assessment. And there's a lot of process for that. But I think what has been missing is the impact of this on physician burnout and how um, you know busy physicians are. And also that many physicians are uh, subspecialized. So for example, if you are an oncologist, maybe you're seeing just breast cancer oncology. Why do you need to know about lung cancer or about leukemia? Long story short, the maintenance of certification issue uh, became extremely popular on Twitter, on social media. And I have asked Dr. Wes Fisher to come on the show. I got to know of Dr. Wes Fisher through his work with the ABIM. Dr. Wes Fisher is a remarkable interventional cardiologist at North Shore University Health System. He lives right here in the North Shore in Chicago. He's an electrophysiologist. Uh, he's a subspecialist. And, you know, he will share with you all his story, how he became involved. What are the information that he uncovered? You are going to literally have to listen to this episode more than one time so you are familiar with what the issues are. Dr. West Fisher has done a lot of work over the past 20 years trying to uncover the truth pertaining to maintenance of certification, the ABIM, the ABIM foundation, the ABIM solutions. What are the issues pertaining to data sharing? What is going on? Why do we need to actually do the maintenance of certification? Why is that? So I went to social media and I will be interviewing Dr. Rich Barron. By the time this episode is airing, you would have listened to the episode I aired with Dr. Rich Barron and Dr. Aaron Goodman. But this episode is really a level set one. It really allows you just to know a little bit more about the history, about the process, about what's going on. And I hope that you, or if you know, whoever you are, if you are listening to this, you decide what you want to do uh, in terms of next steps and how you can support whatever initiatives you believe in. But in order for you to support anyone, you must be informed. You must know the story. You must know the history. And this is what I am doing here on Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm doing everything I can to bring you the facts, the details, the information in an unbiased manner. So Dr. Rich Barron will be able to speak on Healthcare Unfiltered. He has spoken to Healthcare Unfiltered. He will offer his opinion. Dr. Wes Fisher is speaking. Dr. Aaron Goodman is speaking. Everybody who wants to have a platform where they can be respectful and able to provide an opinion that is going to inform the public and everybody who is interested is welcome to come on on Healthcare Unfiltered. I am very grateful to Dr. Wes Fisher to 
coming on Healthcare Unfiltered and providing this exclusive interview about the history and about what's actually going on behind the scenes and what are the next steps. Uh, please support Healthcare Unfiltered. You can do that by subscribing to it, writing a brief review, and sending uh, some of the episodes to your friends and colleagues. And this one must be shared. I promise you it must be shared, and I would appreciate your support for that. You can watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can comment there and provide with any opinion, provide me with any opinions. <clears throat> you can also follow me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or Instagram, Shadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. And let me know what you think and what we can do better to serve the listeners. Welcome to the Healthcare Unfiltered. Really appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule. Oh, thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. It really is. Tell us, what's your day job? Like, what do you actually do? I'm a clinical cardiac electrophysiologist. I uh, am practicing at uh, North Shore University Health System here in Chicago. I work out of four hospitals. I uh, uh, run between all of them when I'm on call. I, I still take call. I've been doing uh, electrophysiology for probably over 30 years. But I'm just a clinical guy. You know, I'm a guy who has to do the day-to-day -day grunt work of talking to patients and actually examining them and planning strategies for medical therapy, things like that, and having long, heartfelt discussions with people uh, about the need for a defibrillator, turning off defibrillators, I mean, real-life stuff. So uh, I am not a, a bureaucrat, uh, but, uh, you know, as would have it, I found a lot of uh, my journey in this whole uh, board certification kind of uh, investigation uh, to be a long one. And, um, and but I've I'm now this year will be up for board certifications uh, redo number four. And it oh, was with, and it was with redo number three that I got started on investigating what was going on with these guys, because that was one of the most stressful things I've had to do in my career. Uh, at the time, uh, board certification uh, was, uh, I'm kind of a super subspecialty within cardiology. Yeah, I was going to ask you actually, when you say recertification number three, is it cardiology, EP intervention? Like t tell us to get to EP, uh, certified, do you have to take several of these? Yes. So uh, first you have to do internal medicine, which I took in 1989. So I am grandfathered in internal medicine. I never have to do that again. But in uh, 1990, the American Board of Internal Medicine unilaterally decided to make lifetime certification time limited. And I never quite understood why, but I was busy in my training program. You don't want to rock the boat. You just kind of put up and shut up and you do your work and you try to excel and be noticed by superiors. Uh, and I wanted to become board certified in cardiology first. Uh, I knew that I enjoyed uh, the subspecialty of cardiology. So I went ahead and applied and uh, in 1992, took, uh, took my, or I'm sorry, 1993, took my cardiology boards. At the time I was in the U.S. Navy, I had to do some time uh, active duty. Uh, at, and then um, in uh, 1994, 
I sat for my electrophysiology boards. So at that time, I earned a certificate in cardiology first and then cardiac electrophysiology uh, that was time limited for 10 years. So that was the new thing. Uh, that was different than my internal medicine, which I proudly display on my wall. That was a lifetime certification. All of a sudden now I had to, I only had 10 years and then I was going to redo it. And you think 10 years is a long way off and you don't really have to think about it too much. So it really didn't seem too onerous at the time. And then 10 years went by and all of a sudden I was panicked. I was like, oh my God, I have to do this again. And so I took a board review course and I went through and I, I had to, at the time, uh, I was uh, involved in a situation that was called double jeopardy. You had to pass uh, your cardiology boards in order to be able to sit for your cardiac electrophysiology boards. And if you didn't pass cardiology, you could not be an electrophysiologist, the, the practice that I was trying to, that I was actually performing. So it was super stressful. You had to both, you know, I hadn't really done general cardiology to any great degree. I had to go back and study for that. I had to take board review course for cardiology. I had to take a board review course for uh, electrophysiology. And it was really stressful. And I, I, I decided to sit for both those boards back to back at the same time. So I wouldn't have to kind of interfere with my clinical schedule. So one day I did cardiology. The next day I did cardiac electrophysiology in the Pearson View Testing Center. I got uh, frisked and uh, told that I had to put everything in a little locker and they had cameras everywhere. Uh, it was like I was a criminal before I even had a chance to sit down at a test. You could bring in a Kleenex, you know, that they gave you. Uh, you couldn't bring any writing utensils, um, anything in the in the room. It, it, it was just very, um, it was gross. And uh, right next to me was a person who was taking a typing test. So that person was banging on the keyboard as hard as they could uh, to try and type so many words per minute because they do all kinds of certifications at Pearson View. They do typing things. And so after a while, I had to come out and actually ask for a timeout to get headphones so they wouldn't have to hear all the typing next to me in the same room because they were taking a different test. Um, and it was just crazy. And, it, and I was like, gosh, this is weird. And, uh, but, you know, um, after paying a lot of fees, I think back in 2000, it was about $795 for sitting for that test plus a $700 uh, test center fee. Um, I was able to, uh, I passed. And didn't think about it for another 10 years. And then all of a sudden... Wes, before we go to the next 10 years, I just want to go back to 1990 when the ABIM, this made it time limited. Mm -hmm. You know, you probably will get to it later on, but uh, is there anything happened in 1990 that the ABIM said, okay, we'll grandfather 1989, but something happened in 1990 where there's a thought wait a minute, this is a bad idea. Let's make it time limited. Did, did they have any reason to do that in 1990? It's taken me a long time to figure that out. Okay. And uh, I, I was equally puzzled by why would this suddenly change? Okay. And after going way back into the seventies and researching this organization, uh, you have to understand that it, they were much like NBPAS is now. The doctors were voluntary contributors to this, and it was, um, you know, kind of a uh, mission 
that the physicians who originally uh, wrote the founding documents for ABIM uh, thought it would last about 50 years and then be dissolved. Uh, but they wanted to show that doctors really knew their stuff. Uh, they did it uh, pro bono. They didn't get salaries. But um, with the uh, president and CEO in the 1970s deci decided, well, we ought to uh, pay our people uh, to do this. This takes a lot of time. And so they reorganized the organization and uh, created uh, all these uh, officer positions, and they started paying themselves salaries. And pretty soon they were burning through a lot of money and uh, to pay all these salaries and staff and people to do this. And they needed a way to make more money to pay these people because all of a sudden they went from clinical doctors to bureaucratic doctors and uh, they didn't see patients anymore. They, they were so busy putting these tests together and, and testing the new people coming in. They had to get together with uh, leaders in their field to write the questions. Uh, they would wine and dine them uh, at really fancy uh, places uh, like Laguna Niguel in uh, California at the hotel, and they would uh, buy fancy wines. And, you know, it was it was a great gig. People got to fly first class to the test center. They got to feel like they were really important people. Um, and it was a heady experience for the people who were test writers. Uh, they, you know, they were the leaders of their field. And ABIM kind of uh, played to that and made people feel very important. Um, but a lot of this was, you know, they, they had to figure out a way to pay their, their debt. And so originally in the 1980s, seven, late 70s and 80, early 80s, they began trying to, to have a super board certification, kind of a fancy extra credential that, that an internist who really wanted to be on the top of his game could perform, and it was a voluntary recertification at the time. Um, and initially, they had a pretty good response, but it was declining over time. They, they offered that test about three times, and it had declining enrollment, and they realized this was not going to be sustainable for them to uh, the organization. So they uh, then convened a task force on recertification, and that task force decided that they would tie uh your initial board certification to maintenance of certification uh testing their excuse was that they were they were doing this for the public's good that they were doing this for uh, to go ahead and make sure doctors are keeping up with their field even though we had continuing medical education that we had to do for state licensure and and they started if you didn't do this, uh, they th threatened, and I quote, uh, uncertain circumstances if you didn't to your board certification. And we subsequently found that they basically want to uh, withdraw your initial board certification that you worked so hard to achieve um, if you don't pay them the money and take the test uh, or whatever the exercise is of the day. They, you know, And then, as we know, they've, they've continually changed it, modified it had to do uh, patient uh, surveys, you had to, which of course is totally against any um, uh, research ethics whatsoever. Um, you're, you're basically gathering data uh, for research purposes that really does not fulfill any IRB uh, quota. 
Well, I brought that up. And of course, it suddenly disappears, um, you know, and now they're pushing questions to our cell phones because they're so nice. And you can do your your mock tests uh, on your cell phone while you're on vacation. I mean, it, it's just it's gone from bad yeah. to even worse. So yeah. that's basically yeah. what's happened. But it, the, it, the reality is it was all about the money. They needed the money. And it was not anything about our education. So let's go back to your story. You know, I digressed a little bit. So you, oh four, you took the EP and the, uh, and then you said, okay, I've got ten more years. I'm okay. I'll go to Laguna Beach. I'm kidding. Yeah. Ten years passed by. Now we're like oh fourteen, and this all over again. I'm pretty sure was stressing you out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was actually thirteen because uh, thirteen. If you, yeah. If you if you took. If you took your boards in, uh, you know, they were nice enough to, if you took your boards early, they, they would still give you that extra year yeah. credit, right? So that you still had, you know, even though you took it early, they would give you the full 11 years from the time you yeah. took it. So I took both my cardiology and EP in 2013. Well, you know, I'm getting older now, you know, I'm 30 years into medicine and all of a sudden uh, uh, I had some arthritis and uh, I had to get a knee replacement, a partial knee replacement, you know, and so... There I am recovering from a knee replacement surgery, and I had just taken my boards, and I was still fuming, absolutely furious, because now I had to do all these other things, interview my patients, do quality assurance metrics. I mean, it was just nuts. The, the stuff they were asking us to do, I was like, we don't have the time for these exercises they're asking us to do and requiring us to do just to sit for our boards. And I said, something's weird here. Something's really strange. And I had a, a very popular blog, Dr. West blog. It's still up, you know, D-R-W-E-S uh, at uh, dot blogspot.com. And, and um, uh, I started writing about my experience on my blog. And, and I started looking into this, uh, what they were doing. And uh, while I was sick, I started pulling their tax forms and looking at my How did you get access to these? You can go to, uh, well, at this time, the one I used was GuideStar. You know, you go to guidescar.com and you could Google and Board of Internal Medicine and find all those forms. Uh, that was the one I started with. Uh, since then, um, <clears throat> the ABM has become a platinum member, which you can pay for. But they can call themselves platinum members, um, which is kind of ironic. But, you know, it, it's platinum because we pay for the platinum, I think. Uh, but, but anyway, they... Um, I, I would go to GuideStar, I'd pull up their form 990, I would look at it, and and sure enough, you can go way back. Um, and I also started looking way back because I wanted to see using the Wayback machine of um, the, the you, you can find that um, and search old websites. And so I started looking at the websites uh, that ABIM had. Um, pulled that up and started looking at some of their financial statements and figuring out, boy, they're they're doing some interesting things. And then uh, as I kept writing about this, obviously other people were incensed uh, and many physicians were feeling extorted. You actually use that word. And uh, a, a forensic uh, accountant picked up on the word extortion and he was between jobs uh, and he was kind of an interesting guy, uh, but uh, he had a little bit of a backstory to himself. But he started he uh, started looking into the finances himself, and uh, he's actually a forensic accountant. So 
he started, uh, we communicated and believe it or not, he was from Chicago <laughs> and, uh, he lived out on right route 14. And I knew kind of where he had, he owned a couple, uh, multi, you know, family units out there. And, uh, uh, he was trying to sell them or whatever. So we actually met uh, at a at a uh, local bar and uh, talked about what he had found. And it was quite surprising. And he was meticulous at his accounting. And But I didn't want to write all this stuff on my blog until I verified it. And everything he was writing was absolutely true. And that was when we uncovered that this weird shadow organization of the American Board of Internal Medicine called the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation. And I looked at the website and it said that this organization was founded in 1999. And I kept looking at that and I said, boy, and it was founded in Pennsylvania. So if you get their tax form, it says it's in Pennsylvania. No, they said it was in Ohio. It was founded in Ohio in 1999. And you look at it and you get the website and, and that foundation that was started had $54 million in it, uh, the year it started, according to the tax forms. And I was like, where did that money come from? And we started going back and the forensic accountant picked up that there was no filing for a, no a nonprofit foundation in Ohio whatsoever. That nonprofit foundation was actually created in Pennsylvania. And it was created 10 years before in 1989. And I was like, okay, whoa, you mean this thing has actually been there for 10 years and we didn't know about it. We had no idea that the ABIM foundation existed. And then we looked back at all the tax forms and they were systematically taking between maybe three and $7 million a year and funding this foundation. And then, and they kept doing that. They kept funneling money from the ABIM to the ABIM foundation. And then they announced to uh, on the public that this foundation was created in 1999. This is what the ABIM website said, because they were going to define medical professionalism for us. Honest to God, that wow. was the purpose of the foundation medical professionalism and it made i was like wow that's an expensive definition and pretty soon i started realizing this was a very corrupt situation and it did not make any sense and so i kept looking and kept looking and kept looking and the more you look the more you find and uh pretty soon of course i started writing about this but the big piece that i wrote was in december of 1999 when I exposed at the culmination of all of this funneling of money, the ABIM purchased a $2.3 million two-bedroom condominium for themselves in the heart of Philadelphia that was that was being used for their purposes, which were not fully disclosed. Um, but I believe they were probably used for their president and CEO who had a home in Arizona and was flying back to Philadelphia with her husband. Uh, she had spousal travel fees paid for by the ABIM. We were paying for that. Who was that? Who was uh, the CEO at the that time? Was Christine Castle. Christine Castle was an interesting character in the history of ABIM. And she was followed by Richard Barron, who you will be speaking with. 
Okay. And in fact, the ABIM has only had two president and CEOs for the last 19 years. And we should really wonder about that. Um, Tell me why you say about Christine Castle. Uh, so the, the the apartment in Philly, which was $2 million condo, uh, was for out. them. To be fair, I asked Richard Barron about the condo, and he said it was being used. They were renting it out to people, IT people, who were you know, uh, coming there, uh, and they would rent it out. And it was cheaper for them to rent out this condominium uh, than to go to hotels and pay for these guys to stay at hotels. Okay, that was the excuse. But he also said that staff did stay there from time to time in his statement to me. Okay. None of this, you know, I have a, I wrote about all this on my blog. Um, and I put his exact words uh, when he, when we spoke uh, on that blog. So I, you know, I'll let pe people can read it, but it was on my blog in 1999. I exposed the ABIM foundation, the $2.3 million condo all relating to the Choosing Wisely campaign, which is quite ironic. And so all of this was a shell game using diplomats' money uh, for the ABIM's political purposes. And uh, it became quite clear that there was a real problem there and that we weren't being told the full story. And so um, I kept looking and looking and looking and I don't. I don't want to do all the talking here, but at the same no, time, no, no. Listeners want to hear you talk. They don't want to hear me talk. Trust me. No. Trust but, me. You know, this is this is basically how I got started. Okay, and then um, one thing led to another. Um, kind of interesting, strange uh, things happened. I exposed uh, someone who was um, trying to. Uh, you know, I was quite naive at the time. I, I really didn't know uh what was really going on um and uh, a fellow blogger sent me and you and you are doing all of this by the way just for listeners and viewers you're doing all of this while you're still maintaining clinical practice yes. taking care of patients yes. but so, so to do this you obviously felt so passionate about something i mean i think for folks who are listening they you know the life of an ep cardiophysiologist covering four hospitals is not something that it's not uh, it's not an easy life and but clearly you felt so passionate about uncovering certain things that you dedicated time for it yeah no question and personally was not the most you know from a professional standpoint probably not you know i'm not i'm not in line with the rest of the world but i i also don't like corruption and i felt this was a corrupt organization and i felt people needed to know about it um and i kept kind of looking into this certification thing and at the time there happened to be a guy out there who was doing board certificates for usually people who were not of US origin. Um, and they were fraudulent certificates. They weren't from ABMS. And I uh, kind of wrote kind of a tongue in cheek thing. And, and um, I put up a fraternity paddle board uh, that talked about the board that he was trying to uh, you know, and made a, a kind of a parody of the board that he was trying. It was like a hypertension board and a, uh, I don't know, some other thing. And this guy was, had about 500 initials after his name and uh, he was changing his name. And then the address that he was putting on the form to apply for were all fraudulent addresses. They were the total fronts. So it was basically an early internet scheme to try and get money from people uh, as a board certificate. Well, 
little did I know, ABIM didn't like that. Okay. <laughs> they really didn't like that. And they they thought, well, this guy's, you know, cheapening our brand, even though they were almost as bad. Uh, and so the next thing that happens is I find that they, they've hired an investigator to go find this guy. Okay. And I actually called him up and told him about this particular person that I had uncovered on my blog, thinking I was a dutiful board certified internist and I wasn't going to take some fraudulent guy out there doing this. And little did I know that the man I was talking to had been a dirty DC cop and was recruited by ABIM after he was uh, convicted on a felony charge for carrying an unregistered firearm in, in the District of Columbia. And he was impersonating a police officer while working at a nightclub. Um, and he had basically been uh, removed from the DC police force because he was, um, you know, uh, targeting a journalist who was writing about dirty DC cops in the District of Columbia. I happen to live in Washington. Um, well, a month after he appealed his three convictions, he ended up getting off just like on a hundred dollar wrist slap. Uh, for these things, but he still carries the felony conviction. And one month after he lost his appeal, he joined ABIM as their director of test security. So I'm like, nice. Yeah. So I had to uncover that. And that was when I went before uh, the AMA, uh, thinking naively that I was going to be able to change the world uh, board certification by exposing this gentleman and all the craziness of the ABIM. And since that time, I realized the AMA is a lot of the problem as well, because guess where ABIM and ABMS came from? They came from the AMA. So the AMA very much wants these organizations to continue because they do what I've ultimately found is the end game for all of this is they're selling our data. And all this these keystrokes that we do while we're doing um, our board certification stuff and the maintenance of certification is all being accumulated, collated. Your ethnic diversity is being recorded. It's being shared with uh, uh, pharmacy benefit managers, uh, hospitals, uh, drug companies, everybody. So, so Wes, when you say the data, in addition to personal data, for example, when they put a question, they share how I answer the question as well. They say, you know, this we don't know. Okay. We don't. Okay. We are not given the privilege, but you are, uh, you have to, you have a, when you do maintenance of certification, you have to agree to, okay, the fact that you're going to share this data with third parties as a HIPAA compliant data sharing agreement. Okay. It is uh, basically, uh, what's the legal term they use for that? It's it, it basically is a, a binding agreement that you have to agree to the sharing of data, of your data, as part of their arrangement for maintenance of certification. You cannot opt out of it, okay? Uh, there's no way to do that. And in order to, so it's an, a way to leverage the sharing of data for them with third parties. And they're selling that under for-profit organization called ABMS Solutions, LLC. And they're selling it to all of these things. And you can look up the website, uh, ABMS Solutions, LLC. 
and that's a for-profit subsidiary of the American Board of Medical Specialties. Every, every subspecialty in medicine is feeding the beast with their maintenance of certification that they have to do. And it's, it's stunning. It's stunning. So uh, to continue on, after learning all this and putting it all together and, and kind of looking at the end game, and if you think about it, they've now gone to a per certificate per year uh, subscription model. It was every 10 years, then it went to every five years you had to pay the fees. Now it's every year you have to pay the fees and it's for every single board certification you have. Now I've got young, I, I just got emailed by um, a young cardiology uh, fellow who sat for his cardiology boards one month ago. And one month later, he passed because he's one of the smartest fellows I've ever worked with. He passed with flying colors and a month later got a bill for his maintenance of certification fee to maintain his certification. I mean, how crazy is that? He paid $2,000 for the test, and now he has to start paying annually for the rest of his career. Yeah, I have, uh, I mean, I'll put that in my intro thing. I mean, I have three, you know, I have Board of Hematology, Oncology, and Internal Medicine, and I maintain the Internal Medicine. I'm not grandfathered in, each, in either. But the interesting piece is that, so my Internal Medicine technically expires December 2024, I enrolled in the longitudinal knowledge assessment, the LKA for the heme and onc, so I get the quarterly questions every three months. Right. That's a random thing, too. There's no, you get 120 questions, and you've got to have them done. No, okay. you have 120 questions, 30 questions per quarter, and all of that. But but the interesting piece is for the internal medicine, I don't need LKA for it. And I don't need, I, I polled actually, and I said, I am board certified in internal medicine until December, 2024. So essentially I don't need the maintenance of certification until after that date. So why do I need to pay yearly for internal medicine if I'm already board certified? And the answer was, well, just because. So, um, uh, so you have to, to your point, just for, um, Law listeners may not be physicians. I mean, these are just basically, this is how it is. If you want to really maintain your board certification, you pay yearly fees, despite the fact, like you mentioned, your cardiology friend, cardiology fellow, despite the fact he just passed, you still have to pay yearly fees forever, pretty much. Very much so. Which, uh, you know, I, we tried multiple times to uh, figure out ways. And, and because of all the writing I've been doing on this blog and, and all of these went to the AMA, um, I even went to pretty soon. There were some other like-minded physicians. Uh, we kind of would get together and coordinate approaches and, and what was working and what wasn't. Um, and a couple of physicians said, you know what, we're going to go to our state legislators and we're going to uh, push through legislation that will get rid of maintenance of certification on a state by state basis. And I thought, wow, that's pretty clever. You know, I think that that sounds like it's going to work, you know, maybe. And so uh, state by state, they started going in Texas, Georgia, uh, a number. They started having minor wins, but there was always an exception clause in there that never quite got put through for the hospitals always seemed to have somebody there or ABMS had a lobbyist there and they would squeeze in some wording that allowed it to continue. 
And um, I went to Ohio. Uh, they had an anti-mock legislation there, which sounded like it might really. And I was going to be a you know an expert there. And I put up a packet of information about all this fraudulent tax filings that I found and the fact that they had manipulated their data and, and all these things on, on tax forms. And, you know, this was really a scam. There's no data that shows that maintenance certification makes you a better doctor uh, at all. And certainly relative to a self-directed CME, okay, no data. So uh, why are we having to do that, et cetera, et cetera, and, and brought it before uh, the legislation there and made my case at, in testimony before uh, the Ohio uh, Medical Board. And um, uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Cleveland Clinic went to the uh, person who brought the bill forward and said, if you put this forward, uh, we are you'll never get another penny from us for political donations. And she pulled the bill. Oh, my God. Wait, 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 wait hold on, hold on. Yeah. Cleveland Clinic. Well, these were people behind the scenes, lobbyists for Cleveland oh. Clinic. Okay, that talked with the legislator and did the strongman thing and just said, nope, we're not going to do that. So that bill got pulled. And so needless to say, maintenance certification remains in Ohio. Okay, so this is the level we're talking about. Okay. And so it became clear that, you know, some of our enemies in this fight are actually hospital systems. You know, this isn't just a minor thing. They really want this a control over doctors. Uh, they want the data. Okay. Uh, group purchase organizations who basically set up all the equipment for hospitals. Okay. Use that data uh, to market and to, uh, kind of work against their competitor and how they, they could probably tie our data to our patient's data. Who knows? We just don't know the depths of the data sharing that are going on. Okay. So th that was pretty scary stuff. And uh, I realized that, uh, and after seeing many states fail to really push through any meaningful legislation that would outlaw mock, uh, I really got kind of disheartened and, um, kind of sat back and there were still a number of very motivated physicians and we wanted to try to figure out what could we do. And so what ended up happening is I took that packet from Ohio, that fraud packet, and I started shopping around Chicago to see if I could find a law firm that would represent, you know, at least go after some of the, the fraud stuff that's going on. Couldn't find anybody. There's nobody in Chicago of a major law firm that doesn't do business with the AMA. And I knew that the AMA was conflicted with this. AMA is very smart. They go ahead and they use all the law firms so that when you try to step into some place that's a big, fancy law firm, um, they say, well, we have a conflict of interest because we defend the American Medical Association. And I, I told them up front that they couldn't have that conflict of interest because I knew enough about trying to do this kind of stuff that uh, that would be a problem. You know, I was kind of feeling despondent. I didn't really think there was anything I could do. But uh, I was out having dinner with a friend of a friend, and uh, that friend of a friend happened to have a, a judge as his wife. 
And I asked that person, hey, um, you know, I've been trying to work on this and figure out what to do. And I can't find a law firm or anything. And that judge said, well, why don't you send that packet to me? I'll take a look at it and see, if, you know, I might know of somebody that could help you. And, you know, and I said, OK, what the heck? I, we haven't won anywhere else. What the hell? So, um, so yeah, so I gave it to that judge and the next day I get called back and said, geez, there's about eight different things here. I can see that would be a problem, but there's, you know, there might be somebody who would be interested in this and, uh, I, and, uh, and they're not affiliated. It's a boutique law firm, little tiny law firm. And they, you know, they're not affiliated with these guys and, they kind of do this kind of work and some of the smartest lawyers we know, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, would you, you know, would you mind if I shared this packet with them? And I said, absolutely not. Go ahead and do that. I don't care. You know, at this point, it's kind of like crazy what's going on. What, what year are we in right now, Wes? This is, uh, probably about 2016-ish. So this is after your third certification. Correct. Everything really started to happen after my third certification. Right. And uh, and that was also the time, uh, mind you, that uh, Paul Tierstein put up his uh, survey. Uh, he also was incensed with the craziness of what was being who, done. Who is Paul Tierstein for folks? Paul Tierstein is uh, from Scripps Medical Center out in California, a very well-respected cardiologist, and, you know, at an academic medical center. And Paul was heavily connected and, and very uh, articulate about how this was just busy work and this made no sense and this is just about the money and uh, but was like me trying to figure out a way to circumvent what was going on. And he figured he, unlike me, who, a guy who had been doing CME for years and self-directing my own continuing medical education on behalf of what I needed to take care of my patients. Okay. That's my philosophy. Paul thought, yeah, no payers need to know that you're keeping up and all that kind of stuff. And he kind of got that, that thing. And he said, you know what, I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to compete with these people in the market for recertification. And I'm going to build an organization called the national board of physicians and surgeons that will be recognized by insurers, okay, and um, compete against these guys. And I'm going to cut the costs in half or less. And I'm going to basically use the market to see what physicians want to do. And so a lot of physicians signed up with him. He, they were, they've been very proactive at trying to get medical executive committees at hospital systems to recognize them as an alternative to the American Board of Medical Specialties. Uh, and, and they're very outspoken and they have good data. And many, many hospitals have agreed. They said, yes, we, we will use you as an, and they finally got accreditation from the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals that they were a legitimate uh, certifier, that people were using their own CME to keep up with their education, medical education. And uh, but there was one big hitch that they couldn't overcome and still can't overcome. And that big hitch is the fact that if you work at an ACGME accredited medical center, 
In other words, a training facility for U.S. physicians. He couldn't break in there because the American Board of Medical Specialty is a member board, along with the American Hospital Association, of the ACGME. And so the hospital I work, which is a training facility with the University of Chicago to train young doctors, we cannot get uh, the NBPAS uh, alternate recertification at our hospital because we would lose our ACGME training accreditation because we're not using ABMS certified doctors. So there's your regulatory capture, okay? And now we have to pay the fees in order to be able to remain the teachers, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it goes way up, right? This is now we're up at the AMA. The AMA, by the way, is part of the ACGME. The American Hospital Association is part of the ACGME. The National Board of Medical Examiners is part of the ACGME. And the Association of American Medical Colleges is all part of the ACGME. Okay, so they're all working together. And they're all sharing this data. And they're all using that data, okay? And it's it's uh, it's it's quite a racket, okay? So now that we understand where it was, I, I was feeling pretty despondent, but I got the name of this law firm, and next thing I know, I, the law firm's calling me up and saying, we, we should meet. And I said, okay, I, I'm in. So I uh, blocked my schedule, took a half day off, Took the train downtown, met with these guys, and it was fascinating to watch them work. Oh, my God. They started looking at this, trying to understand it. They look at ABIM, and they said, they don't have any money. Even if we win, we're not going to – they don't have any money. <laughs> yeah, they're we're like, not gonna... <laughs> what are we going to do? There's just no way. They're like, these guys are nothing. Okay, and I said, well, there might but be – But little... you've got the foundation, right? The – yeah, well, I, yeah. I said, well, you know, there's a few other people that might be involved. And, you know, I, I, I think all this data is going to maybe some insurers. Oh, boy. Boom. They're like, they're, they sat back there like, really? I said, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure these data sales are going to pharmacy benefit managers and insurers and all these kind of guys. All, all of a sudden, they got really interested. Okay. And then they're like. The insurers, do, the insurers do have money. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So now they're really interested. And then he looks at me and he goes, but you got no money. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, I guess we're done, you know? And I said, thanks for listening. You know, it's all good. You know, there's nothing, not much I can do here. He but goes, uh, well, well, so, so they would not, I mean, so, lots of these plaintiff firms, they take cases at no cost to the plaintiff <clears throat> because they're going to recover the the awards later on no uh yeah that but that's not how this worked <laughs> so uh so but so anyway i'm I, i'm about to walk out of their office right and i've got my computer there with all of this data that i've pulled up and answering all their questions as fast as it and furious as, and they're looking at every angle okay i mean there's a big discriminatory angle here right? Because of the grandfather issue, people who were certified before 1990, gee, the people farthest away from any testing, they were exempted. But everybody who's young, people of color, women, you know, that have now grown in, in numbers in the medical field, right? They're, they're totally discriminated against. They have to pay this fee. Whereas these old 
you know, white elite guys don't have to do that, right? And if you look at the authors who were on that task force for recertification, none of them participate in maintenance of certification. Okay, so so there you go. Okay, so this was a really clever thing that they did to tie these certifications together. So anyway, so we started talking about all the different angles to go with this. And they basically said, okay, well, we'll see what we come up with. They called me back and said, you know, I tell you what, if you uh, can raise $150,000, that will be enough for us to get an outside opinion, whether there is an antitrust case here or not. We have an expert who looks at this stuff. And this would pay for that expert to review all of this and make a decision. And if he agrees that there is a case, we will file a suit against these guys. And I'm thinking, everybody hates the American Board of Internal Medicine. This should be a piece of cake. I mean, you know, we're all being squeezed by these guys. We don't know why. We're having to pay all these fees. The fees keep going up. And so I said, I'm going to try and raise $150,000 for my physician colleagues. But I also didn't want it to be about me. Okay. I I realized that I have I can't be working alone. I cannot be the guy. It would open me up to litigation and problems. I need a I need a board. I need I need people to really stand with me and help make decisions and think about this. So we formed our own nonprofit called Practicing Physicians of America because we're the guys actually practicing medicine. We're not some American Medical Association that half the people don't even see a patient, right? These are all practicing doctors. Every one of our doctors on our board are volunteers. We don't get paid a penny, but it allows me to have a very diverse group. I have three women. We got three guys. We've got, you know, uh, a psychologist, a breast surgeon, a cardiac electrophysiologist, a couple of pediatricians, you know, and everybody was seeing the same thing happen in their subspecialties. And so we got together and formed this organization, filed it, made it, and started working on this project together. And we set up a GoFundMe that came to that organization. And the GoFundMe was specifically to help defer. Uh, we None of us had been harmed by the program yet. Okay, we had all passed our boards, right? But there are people who had to recertify and didn't pass and had huge psychological impact, social impact. Some people had to change jobs, people had to go. So there were people that were harmed by this process. And because I'd been blogging about this, I was able to identify many of these people. And so the law firm went and vetted them and said, okay, these are people who all have come from different angles and took four of the people as plaintiffs for the lawsuit. So myself and our board, we're not plaintiffs, but if you end up going to trial, you know, the plaintiffs might be on the hook for costs, right? So we agreed to indemnify the plaintiffs and so that they would be able to file because we're like, Hey, we, we can raise money if we need to, if this goes to trial, I don't have any doubt we'll be able to raise money for these people. That's how confident I was. That's how crazy this whole thing is. And uh, as we've seen by the uproar recently on Twitter, it's kind of rekindled itself 
Um, it's interesting to me that it's taken about 10 years to re-get to this point again, because that's about the, the the maintenance of certification cycle, you know, that we we've had. And we've got a younger generation now looking at this and going, this is crazy what we're having to do. So it's wonderful to see that this new enthusiasm uh, to go uh, attack this problem again. And doctors have way more power than they realize. Um, but self-directed CME is all we should be doing. Maintenance of certification has no evidence base behind it. The only evidence base we have is the fact that they needed money. That That is truly evident. And you can look that up, okay? They needed money to support their organization and pay these exorbitant salaries that they're all doing. And then we find all these conflicts of interest that, oh, by the way, I, I challenge you to look for the conflict of interest statement that ABIM publishes. Before you reach, speak with, with Rich Barron, try to connect any link on their website and you won't be able to find their conflict of interest statement, okay? So do try that. That would be homework to do before you talk with Rich Barron. If you find it, let me know, because I'll be happy to share it with people because they have so many conflicts, it's hard to keep up. And in fact, I looked up their bylaws from 1997. It says they can have any conflicts of interest they want to. Section 9.5 of their bylaws says that they can receive funds from anybody, anyhow, anyway. And um, it's quite revealing. Um, so I'd be interested to see any conflict of interest statement they have. If you look at their IRS filing, okay, even the most recent one, there's misspellings in all of the, the internet links. So they get you nowhere. You won't be able to find the conflict of interest statement that's on the tax filings. So I believe, and this is my personal opinion as you know, free speech goes, I believe they're fraudulently filing tax forms still. It's claiming they have a conflict of interest statement, knowing full well that they have so many conflicts that they're not willing to share what that statement is because they have too many conflicts and they wouldn't be able to support them in, in the court of law. So, you know, look at the tax filing at the very end of the form 990, even this year, it's available on the ABIM website. Go back, you can see a big paragraph all about their conflict of interest statement and everything. And all of the links, the internet links there don't work. They're misspelled. There's a letter missing there. And even when you correct the spelling and try to look for that link, it doesn't exist. So that, that speaks volumes. That speaks to what this organization is and what this whole thing is, is a racket. It's a total racket. So as we went forward, um, the law firm decided on antitrust violations, okay? And the reason antitrust is so powerful, if you can get to court, is it's trouble damages. So for all of the internists who've been damaged by this, it's 3x, okay? For all the fees and money and all that kind of stuff, it's three times whatever they, so the lawyers, if they win one case, it's a big win, okay? And they just have to get to court. But our court system, as you know, okay, probably better than many, is not so easy to get to court, okay? Particularly when you have powerful interests with big pockets, like insurers, hospital systems. You know, the AMA has $695 million in the bank. 
I mean, good luck. You know, we don't have that kind of money, right? So they can hire fancy lawyers to defend them and defend their interests. And the hospital association has about that much money too. So when you start looking at the money involved, it's big, big money. It's billions of dollars. And in fact, the CME market for U.S. physicians in 2015 dollars was 5.4 billion a year. Okay, $5.4 billion a year physicians pay for CME of some kind. And when you put that kind of money and you realize that maintenance of certification is encroaching on the CME market, okay? In other words, you have to do maintenance of certification before you do continuing medical education. Otherwise, you won't be able to practice medicine in today's world. It's no longer voluntary. You have to do this if you want to remain able to practice medicine so so right now uh there are um you know they went to the consulting lawyer they found that there's an antitrust uh, window there and that is now pending the possibility of going to court with the you know judicial system obviously back and forth but uh, there is there's no lawsuit that's been filed or there's a lawsuit being filed there's no court date there are three lawsuits that have been filed okay okay uh, in December, I think, of 2018 was the first lawsuit for antitrust and racketeering violations filed against the American Board of Internal Medicine. Uh-huh. And okay. none of these have a court date. They're just going through the system. Uh, I'll, uh, let me explain what happened, okay? Yep. The first lawyer or first judge who received that, okay, was a senior judge. It was his last uh, ruling of his career, Okay. And he ruled that maintenance of certification and board certification were one product. And therefore, there is no anti antitrust violation and dismissed the case before it could get to trial. After he heard arguments from everybody and, and it, it probably was, you know, so we don't know how he was selected, but he was the judge and we had to go with it. That formed a precedent. Okay, for other cases that were going to come down the line, one of which was the an antitrust case of a radiologist against the American Board of Radiology. Okay, and the American Board of Radiology case uh, was dismissed on the same grounds because of the precedent that was set with ABIM, but that case was appealed to the appellate court level. Okay. And uh, just last year, maybe 2021, I believe, or 2022, I'm not sure when the exact decision came down from the appellate court, but the appellate court was interesting because that's now three judges and you get kind of a broader and they questioned both attorneys, you know, and they had a chance to file their briefs, et cetera, et cetera. And it was interesting to see all the, the, um, uh, amicus briefs from all the organizations that wanted to keep board certification came in. Okay. So they had to look at all that. And, uh, and of course, I've never heard of any of those organizations that filed those amicus briefs, but suffice it to say, a lot of people want board certification, maintenance of certification to continue for obvious reason. And uh, anyway, they, um, the judges did rule that maintenance of certification and initial board certification are separate products because of a very critical 
uh, case that came in during uh, just prior to the deliberations. There was a via media case. Okay, it was a communications case that said you have to go back when you look at the at these things. You have to go back and look at how they came to be, and the fact that original initial board certification didn't require maintenance certification yet they added this later made it two products okay and that was a critical part of their ruling all right so the the two product thing suddenly uh the argument for abim that existed before was at the appellate level was thrown out but then the appellate judges said but you haven't explained why this is monopolizing a market and what market's being monopolized well in the complaints neither side had to argue that that was a whole new thing that got thrown out there we're like what do you mean you know like ah, you know but because the complaints didn't have that piece of the pie so to speak they threw out the abr case too so once again physicians didn't get their day in court and so it was very disappointing. And then, uh, so, but to keep a little glimmer of hope, there was a third lawsuit. And the third lawsuit decision by the judge was waiting on the appellate court ruling before the judge ruled on her case that was before her. And so she, she at least asked uh, both sides how does the appellate court ruling on a case that's very similar to the one i'm supposed to decide how is that you know how does the appellate court ruling affect this case and went to both sides and they both briefed she said in 10 pages or less give me your answer and so lawyers from both sides went back filed their briefs they had to be in by a certain deadline and there it sits right we're waiting for the big decision and then we find out oh, that that judge has been removed from the case it's been reassigned to somebody else to make the decision no yeah when was that uh probably a couple weeks ago you gotta be kidding me i am not kidding so do we know who the new judge is we do He's not a real antitrust expert, okay? But of course not. It's a, it's a male, and it's not an, you know. And so we're probably not going to get a decision on the third case until next year, sometime maybe, because you know they he he gets a whole docket of 150 cases, and you know by the time he gets to this one, but this case has been fully briefed on both sides. He just has to read them. Do we maybe. know why why it was reassigned to a different judge? Yeah. No idea. I I don't know. I I obviously am a little bit cynical of the judicial system right now because of what we've been through through all of this, and so no, I do not know. But that was more good news that was shared with us just recently. Um, you know, and mind you, we're not the guys filing these suits. Okay, despite what Richard Barron, so you wouldn't get on. You know. He wouldn't get on the thing because, you know, I'm the guy who's working to sue them. Well, yes, I'm I'm the guy trying to get to the answer of why we have to do this stupid stuff. And I'm willing to put my money behind these plaintiffs who are brave enough to stand up against a system 
that is is just you talk about your book being toxic. Uh, this is a very toxic thing that's being done to doctors um, from a psychosocial standpoint. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, uh, Wes, uh, you're you're due for recertification again, aren't you? I am number four. So number four, four I mean. 40 years I've been practicing medicine. And, and we I, still don't know if you're doing a good job. So we have to make you sit for another test. That's correct. I mean. No, it, I, I get it, though. It's all about the money. Okay. But they, let, 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 let's go But let, let's go through a few things. I mean, I think I think ju just a few things. I mean, th this is a fascinating story. But if if the physicians are able to convince their hospitals which you, by the way, explained to me the ACGME angle, which is I'm pretty sure my listeners and viewers probably were not aware of. But technically speaking, if somehow hospitals and healthcare systems stop demanding this for you to practice and payers are willing to pay and reimburse you regardless of this, pretty much nobody would care then, right? I mean, so is it easier, I guess, is it easier for you, is it easier for you as a physician and a practicing physician to influence the healthcare entity that you're working with, the hospital, the uh, uh, university, whatever it is, than influencing the ABIM? No. Why is that? I am considered a uh, pariah in my hospital system. Because I you're am, complaining I, about this. I'm complaining. You can't complain. If you want to make it in medicine, you have to get your MBA. You have to suck up to the hospital board. You have to play the game. You can't be a doctor, not a true doctor. You have to be all about hospital, the hospital system, and everything that goes along with controlling employment of physicians. And what a better way to wield power over doctors than being able to control the patient market as employed physicians. Before we went to the employed physician model in the U.S., where more doctors were independent than they are employed, okay, uh, doctors, if the hospital didn't help their patients, they would take their patients somewhere else to a competing hospital. Well, with employed physicians, uh, the hospital gets to maintain that group of patients. And so they have their own certain monopoly over patient populations. Now, you have to understand that the hospitals are competing against insurers. Insurers want to control the population, too. And the hospitals really physicians are just the busy bodies underneath everything going on the real battle is between insurers and hospitals for trying to control patients and where patients go and how much they pay because we've agreed that everybody should have health insurance in america and so the guys who get the people with the money are the people with the the power and that's just the way our capitalism works so you know the I am going to have you back on the show to uh, as a rebuttal for uh, the conversation I'm having with Dr. Rich Barron and Dr. Aaron Goodman. But uh, but I guess what is the path forward? I think you have. I got to know we operate in different spheres in cardiology and in I mean oncology, but social media brings people together. 
And I really have got to know your work because of the ABIM and everything that's going on. And there's a lot of recent uproar on social media, but like everything in life, you get like this surge and then things die down because people get busy, right? because you have other priorities. And frankly, because sometimes, like you mentioned the word despondent, which is really spot on, right? You get despondent, you know, you get beat up so many times. You say, you know what? I'll just pay that six, $700 and take my whatever. I'll try to be faster on Google and up to date and see what I can do. I mean, what do you do? Do you see a glimmer of hope of this? Like, do you actually genuinely deep down inside, do you really feel that this is going to get somewhere? I mean, we've had some responsiveness from the ABIM that they're willing to come on the show. They want to talk. They're willing to have a conversation. I don't know. Is this like a lip service or a glimmer of hope? I see you smirking and smiling. (laughs) I think it's great that a new contingent of people are trying to bite off on this thing. I think it's great. Okay. I also know that uh, given what I've been through and the heights to which this goes, um, good luck. Kind have of you like, gone to the press? I mean, have you thought about going to the Wall Street Journal, to the Tribune, to the New York Times, whatever? Like, you know, I mean, I think there's, you know, there to the Netflix. Country. I don't know, like whatever. <laughs> Great. No, the condo story is interesting. Uh, the uh, forensic accountant went to Elizabeth Rosenthal from the New York Times with it. And she goes, oh, well, I'm going on sabbatical uh, to write my new book. American Sickness. American sickness. I'm going to put it in my book. So it's in the book. But the book doesn't have the New York Times readership. I read the book, actually. It's a good book, but I can tell you the focus. But the focus was not that. I mean, like when I read the book, I obviously she she talks about the American healthcare system. And I think she does a good job. It's actually one of my one of the books I've recommended to a lot of folks. But I don't think the focus you don't leave the book and you think. ABIM and board certification. Yeah. No, it's just a small page or two in the book. I mean, it's right, nothing. Right, right. right. Nothing. So, so going back, like, is there another opportunity to call press and, and other people, like, especially with the social media surge and everything? Is this a renewed opportunity for you to, to say, hey? Uh, and then my second question to you is, I was looking at the petition that Aaron Goodman started. <clears throat> Why don't you think uh, the petition gets more signatures? Uh, because we've been down this road before. Uh, I think uh, Paul Tierstein and his uh, survey had 18,000 signatures. And that's and that was enough for him to create the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. Um, and magically, the petition kind of disappeared. And of course, no one thinks about it anymore. And I think uh, there, again, there, there is a, a sense of hopelessness in the battle, uh, that we are now just uh, mere cogs in the big healthcare system. Uh, physicians um, are totally burned out. Uh, they don't see, they know that all of these other efforts in the past really have not amounted to much. Uh, you know, it's a petition. It's not like going after these guys. Now, I can tell you if the American Board of Physicians or the, the the lawsuit against the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, that's the last one remaining that's been fully briefed and had to change lawyers and we're waiting on a decision. If that decision is we're going to trial, Katie, bar the door. All it takes is one. 
one antitrust case to set precedent for all of the others. There are 24 member boards. And this law firm will have an infinite amount of work. Okay. And 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 precedent to stand behind it. And case law to show how physicians have been abused by the system. So it just takes one. So I'm hopeful that maybe we'll get a, all we want to do is make it to trial. Just let us get to trial. We don't even need a guilty verdict because we need discovery. We need to find out about where our data is going. We need to find out how this is used. Where's this money going? And you're going to find that all of these DEI initiatives and the Macy Foundation and all of the money that's going toward is very much politically motivated, okay? Kind of a single payer type emphasis. Uh, Christine Cassell was not only the on the board, okay, of the American Board of Internal Medicine and was president and CEO of that organization. At the same time, for 10 years, she had been on the board of Kaiser Foundation Health Plans and Hospitals and was on the board of Premier Incorporated. And she was receiving stock options and salary to be on those boards while we were paying her salary, okay, at the ABIM. She also finally made it to the mecca of all places where A the ABIM was kind of planting her with the national quality form for all the hospitals. And it was when she got that position as the president of the National Quality Forum that all of a sudden these conflicts of interest with Kaiser and Premier Incorporated were exposed by ProPublica. And when that came out, she was also on the President's Council of uh, Advisors in Science and Technology to President Obama. So this goes all the way up, all the way up this story. Okay. And have they ever addressed the conflicts of interest of Christine Castle, the president and CEO of the ABIM, and how that affected U.S. physicians and the healthcare market? No, hasn't been done yet. But let's do a little discovery about that with a case trial and let's find out really what's going on with maintenance of certification. That's what I hope to achieve because this thing from the ground up has been corrupt from the get go. It was done with strong arm tactics because they know physicians aren't going to push back. Uh, they've monopolized the CME market. Okay. We are having to pay for exorbitant fees. The mock fees have gone up over 450% since 2000. Think about that. The ABIM had $141 million in assets in 2020. Their most recent financial statement in 2022 has $181 million. And guess what? Fees went up in 2023, 25%. Now, how much money do these knuckleheads need? You know, it's it's horrible. And we're being extorted. And we're uh, and our patients are suffering because of it, because doctors are leaving medicine. That's how bad it is. Okay. And and they don't care. They really don't care what we think. As, as they showed in that wonderful tweet about doing your, your maintenance of certification things on vacation, you know, while you're traveling to all 48 states, you can be doing your longitudinal assessment. What a deal. I mean, tone depth, uh, it really doesn't describe 
just how bad this organization is. Oh my God, Wes, this is uh, this is fascinating in a bad way, unfortunately. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I, I think I think what you're doing is is amazing. I just uh, like you said, <clears throat> certainly the hope is that there's a trial because this allows you discovery. Um, uh, it's tough after the first two setbacks to be optimistic, but I, I, I appreciate your enthusiasm and your optimism. Uh, is there anything else I should have asked you about this? Because you know we're going to bring you back to have a rebuttal uh, for all the points we made. I mean, I think you already rebutted a lot of the points that I'm going to hear about, but um, any other thing you would like to share about the background, the history? I mean, I think people now really have a very good understanding of what happened over the past 20 years, 20, 30 years. Yeah, it's been 30 years. And um, I, I don't think there's there's much else to tell. Um, this was a money-making operation from the get-go. Uh, they've lied, cheated, and steal, stolen, literally, from physicians. They've created this foundation for their own personal and, pro uh, and professional uh, and political uh, purposes. Um, they, uh, consider themselves a quality metric. That was the other thing. One of the other things that they did during all this time while Christine Castle was in that is they were probably working with insurance companies to write the ACA law and maintenance of certification is considered a quality registry in the ACA law, a quality registry. Think about that. Okay. That's how they're defining a quality physician is if you participate in maintenance of certification in the law. Okay. Well, who is the law written by? How did 2,800 pages of law suddenly magically appeared when it was voted on in 2010? I mean, it was already pre-written and it was it's written crazy. by insurance companies. It's, cra it's crazy. Okay? Yeah. So maintenance of certification is in there. Rich Barron was critical at making sure maintenance of certification was written in the law because he was working in the National Quality Forum himself. So there's a revolving door between Christine Castle and the National Quality Forum. You know what? It may end up, uh, it may end up, I don't know, I have to look, I mean, I know, it's part of the ACA, probably one of the bills, like, you know, the ACA passed and this was part of it. Right. Oh, it was. You never know. It was. All of that was going on while we're working, taking care of patients. Okay. It most certainly was, all of this stuff with the foundation, everything was kind of a smokescreen to, to feed the beast for the insurance companies, okay, so that they had maintenance of certification as a quality metric. They were once that was written into law, they were guaranteed it was money for the rest of those organizations' yeah. careers. Yeah. Right? It's law right now. That's oh right. God. It's law. So I'm sorry. <sighs> I hate to be Debbie Downer, but at the same time, uh, you know, if people understand really what's going on, I think that would be helpful. Uh, it will certainly direct and expose why. ABIM called consultants on their tax forms that were not consultants, they were actually lobbyists. And the ABIM was lobbying to make sure maintenance of certification got plugged into that bill. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's where all that money went. And it was labeled as a, a, a contribution. And the day that she, Christine Castle became, in 2009, became the president of the National Quality Forum, Okay, remember that happened just before the ACA law was passed in 2010. I'm just saying, I mean, I was trying to link both together and I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the, the case, you know? Yeah. 
Well, um, Dr. Westfisher, I can't thank you enough uh, for, first of all, coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, it's a long overdue interview and a podcast. I hope that thousands and thousands of people listen to this to really understand what's at stake and what's going on. And um, I think you still have your blog. I was checking out some of the things. I mean, I, I, you know, any where do you want to direct listeners or viewers if they want to learn more and they want to contribute or whatever it is? Yeah. Uh, well, they can reach me on Twitter, Dr. West, spelled D-O-C-T-O-R-W-E-S, uh, is my uh, handle on Twitter. And then also uh, the Dr. West blog is a good place to reach me. Uh, I also can be messaged on the Practicing Physician of America website at west at practicingphysicians.org. Um, any of those uh, ways to reach me is fine. And if there's anything I can do to help other people who are trying to struggle with this problem, you know, certainly we can give it a shot. Understand that this is not an easy thing to fix, uh, but we're we're trying very hard. And if people want to continue to fund our GoFundMe or contribute to Practicing Physicians of America, understand that uh, we are a very lean and mean organization. Uh, it pretty much just uh, would fund our uh, continuation of keeping the website up and keeping uh, our MailChimp uh, mail uh, line open uh, because th those things do cost a little bit of money. But um, so if people can donate five, ten bucks, uh, that's great. Uh, we're not looking for the world to set it on fire. Uh, we don't need much. Uh, we don't communicate any more than we need to because we're all busy clinicians also. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is a grassroots organization that's been formed to try and fight this on a very serious level. Um, in a very uh, a, a way that might actually have an impact for U.S. physicians across the country. And uh, I hope we uh, get some traction. So we'll just have to wait to see. Thank you for everything you're doing, Dr. Wes Fisher on Healthcare Unfiltered. Really, thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks. Folks, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I appreciate your support. I appreciate everything you are doing to support Healthcare Unfiltered. I hope you know more after listening to each episode than what you knew before. I hope you realize that Healthcare Unfiltered is here to provide you with unbiased opinions, but also every so often you're going to hear my views, my theories, and what can I say? I am due for my next longitudinal knowledge assessment in October for my hematology and oncology and internal medicine is likely going to happen next year. Uh, but hey, there is a glimmer of hope. Dr. Wes Fisher and others are working diligently to try to um, provide the counter argument to this. And maybe that this is not something that is needed, that is actually helping patient care and patient outcomes, because uh, we all are doing continuous medical education to maintain our state licensure. So we shall see how things evolve, and you can rest assured that we are going to bring all of these facts to you on Healthcare Unfiltered. So don't forget to let me know how I'm doing. Direct message me on Twitter and follow me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or Instagram, Shadi health, uh, underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. And let me know all of your opinions and ideas. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Winston Churchill. Now, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Until next time, take care.